You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Gonna pray until they tear your kingdom down. Hello, everybody. This is Danny Anderson welcoming you to another episode of the Bunker Recordings of the Sectarian Review podcast. We are still isolated from my office at Mount Aloysius College, and so I don't have access to my recording studio. So uh, we're sort of on the road with this one. Um, and today we're recording a show about one of my kind of most dearly held movies. I love this movie to death, and Katie Grubbs uh, suggested we do a show about it. And so I asked her and Jay Eldred to come on to talk about the great, uh, I guess, sci-fi horror western uh, Tremors uh, from the 1990s. And uh, we're going to have a fun conversation about that. So uh, first, let me uh, introduce the the cast for today jay how are you doing why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your life down in new Bern? okay yeah i am jay eldred i'm from new Bern, north carolina um things are going well we just finished up the school year a uh, week early thanks to the whole situation that we're in but it's interesting that you described these as one of the bunker episodes because right now i am recording from a house with no power thanks to <laughs> some kind of power outage that the the electric company is like, uh, oh, we'll get it fixed sometime. So <laughs> anyway, was it a year ago that the hurricane came through for you guys? Um, I think it's, Oh, the power just came on Oh, <laughs> as we've been talking. Um, it was about two years now. Oh. It'll be, t- it'll be two years in two years in September that hurricane Florence came in and we had to evacuate for almost a month. But mm. anyway, so this is not so that's that. How, so uh, that is how I'm doing, and our listeners got to hear me say the power's on. <laughs> hey, uh, timing is everything, so perfect. It is. Um, and joining Jay and I is uh, Katie Grubbs of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Katie, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, we are uh, here in Sugarland, Texas is where we live. Um, me, David Grubbs, the CHP, and our four children. Um, we are finishing up the last few days of school, distance learning for my two oldest who are in elementary school. So we're gearing up. Thursday is the car parade where we get to drive by school and wave at their teachers and uh, shout at them and thank, thank them for everything they've done. So um, it's also a little sad because this is the last year. They're about to tear down their school and rebuild it, which is really cool. Um, but it's it, it's going to mean that for the next 18 months, they're going to be kind of in a different school, like mm-hmm. having their classes in a different school. And then, and this, this school building is the oldest one in our County. It's over a hundred mm-hmm. years old. So they're going to tear it down all except the old like historic gym facade and then rebuild an entirely new school on the same location. So it's going to be really cool when it's finished, but it's like a little melancholy because nobody got to finish out the school year in the original building, the teachers principal. Um, so it's a little sad, but it's going to be really cool. And while the, while it's being rebuilt, the school my kids get to be in um, for that time is the newest elementary school in the entire county. So they're going to a really fancy new building to ride that out. So it's cool. 
perfect. Yeah, let me ask you a question, just not to delay the content of the show too long. But you know, Jay's a teacher, and and you and I both, Katie, have kids in elementary school. How are I mean, were they like my daughter today, who's in fifth grade? So she actually kind of lost the transition to middle school through all this, sadly, and I think she's got some anxiety about that. Um, but are they uh, were they able to go pick up their uh, stuff? Like my daughter today went and picked up their stuff. Did your schools allow for that? We had, um, yeah, we had the option. In the end, you had to tell them by a certain day you were coming. And I missed the deadline um, on that. But we weren't super fussed about it because really it was just school supplies that were still there, which for my daughter, I mean, my daughter's in first grade. My oldest is in first grade. So it was kind of construction paper, her little pencils and stuff. She didn't really have that much. Um, my son is in special needs preschool and he had some things at school that his teacher actually is going to bring to us, which was wonderful. Mm. They, he had like two magna doodles. They let him do the magna doodle during nap, nap time. Cause he refuses to sleep. And if he can't draw, he will talk. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so he had two magna doodles and two illustrated Bibles in the classroom that I didn't know were there. So they're going to bring those to our house, which is really sweet. Um, and it'll give us a chance to give them their teacher appreciation gifts because we didn't get to do that in person either. But that that stinks for your daughter about the end of fifth grade. That's hard. The end of fifth grade isn't mm-hmm. really a big deal. Yeah, yeah. She's a little bummed about it, actually. And one of her best friends is moving, um, too. And so she's actually at her house right now while I'm recording this. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of a bummer for her. She did come home with some winter boots. That's how long this has been going on. Actually. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so, um, what about you, Jay? Did you guys allow them to come pick up? Yeah, we, well, we, I'm dealing with a lot of students with very limited technological access. So while, you know, you might have seen in the news with people doing Zoom and things like that. That was not what I was able to do. Um, pretty much I recorded my videos to YouTube and then sent it out to my students. But what we did is every two weeks we had a pick up and drop off where they could drop off assignments, pick up the next set. And then on the last one, they, they were uh, scheduled by grade. It's like your grade comes during this time. Yeah. And then they would drop off their last assignments. And we went in and we cleaned out their lockers, got everything labeled. So when they pulled up, we went, it was like Carline, they pulled up, we went out, gave them their stuff, they gave us what, their last things to turn in, and they went on their way. Um, we're hoping, depending on what our governor decides to allow um, in terms of, of people gathering together, we're hoping that later in the summer, before next school year begins, we can do a get-together where we'll do the sports awards and the honor rolls and the um, yearbook presentation, all of those things that kind of got cut off here at the end. Yeah, it's a weird year for all the kids uh, and the teachers, right? And so I just wanted to take a minute, uh, since we're still in the middle of this, kind of to uh, to mention that. Who knows when this will be released, but uh, we're recording this here right after Memorial Day. And uh, and so I just wanted to kind of, uh, while we're here, talk about it a little bit. But uh, let's kind of not dwell on that. Let's kind of get into the fun uh, and excitement that is Tremors. Um, just real quickly, if you haven't seen this movie, it's from, I think, 1990, I believe, um, or right around that transition, at least. And uh, it stars Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward and they're two handymen who uh, serve the small population of I think 10 or 14 people uh, of perfection in somewhere in the in the west I assume that's like New Mexico or, or uh, Utah or someplace and um, 
they are uh, the community is beseeched by these underground worms that eat people, <laughs> and uh, and that's basically the plot. And they have to find a way to get out of town uh, while these uh, these worms are chasing them. And uh, and so uh, for whatever reason, it sounds like such a silly movie, and it is such a silly movie. Um, it is also one of my favorite movies. I, I there's probably five or six movies that I watch every year rather regularly, and this is one of them. Uh, and uh, and so I just want to take a few minutes and i'll start with katie to talk for a little bit about why it is that that we're kind of drawn to this movie katie uh we both talked beforehand all three of us um about why or the fact that we watched this movie multiple times like so what is it for you that makes it such a joy i think that i first watched this movie when i was a teenager with my dad um and i think that there's a couple of things, I think, reasons that I keep going back to it. But one of the reasons that I love this movie is because I am not actually not a person who likes scary movies. Um, I don't like I mean, I don't mind suspense and I and I and I love kind of thrillers. I like action movies, but I don't necessarily like things, especially anything that's kind of like supernatural horror or anything like that. I just I'm not a huge fan. Um but this is a scary movie that takes place outside, mostly in the middle of the daytime, and the sun is shining bright. And so it's difficult to feel, you know, you don't get the same, it's scary, but you don't get the same oppressive, you know, there's not shadows everywhere. It doesn't feel like there's a kind of, um, the tone is very different. I guess I'll say it that way. It's, it's So there are some jump scares, there are some moments that are genuinely scary, but it's not the same type. And so it's, it's basically, it's a scary movie that I can enjoy <laughs> as a person who is a very, very... Um, hesitant when it comes to scary films um and also it's just it's it's very very funny um david and i oh every time we forget just how many lines are hilarious and then we watch it again and you know and there's a few you know few things that we sometimes say around our house too but um it's just i don't know i feel like and, and the other thing i like is that um and maybe part of this is because i think so often now with hollywood movies like everyone in the movie is attractive you know there's a kind of flattening I, the, all of these people look like regular people seem like regular people that you might encounter in your daily life and so it feels very lived in um very natural to me um this place feels like a real place and i really appreciate that the specificity of place in the movie so those are some of my favorite things about it yeah that's a really good that's a lot of really good points you made there and and i just want to kind of jump off of one you said um about watching it with your dad. I mean, this is like a horror movie you could watch with your kids and your the, the families could watch together. My oldest daughter watched it with me today when I when I watched it again. And uh and she doesn't like horror movies at all, but she kind of sat through and laughed and and was thrilled at this one as well. And it does it is I mean, there's some like swear words or whatnot uh in it, but but there's not like uh any content that isn't it's barely worse than television. Right. And so, um, yeah, and it is a, a very kind of family friendly horror movie. I kind of consider it a, an entryway horror film for my kids. And so, yeah, no, that, that's a great point. Um, what about you, Jay? Uh, can I just say ditto to what Katie just said? Because it is nearly exactly like my same experience with the film. The first time that I watched it, I would have been, I don't know, maybe a little bit younger than a teenager, but it was one of those came on TV, watched it with my dad the kind of thing that whenever it comes up on TV, I will stop and I will watch it. Um, I really like thrillers and suspense, but I'm not one for, again, supernatural horror or just outright gore. That doesn't, and I don't like that. But this, this particular, like not just Tremors, but the whole franchise is, I don't know, it's like campy horror. (laughs) 
it, it's supposed to be scary, but not. Um, the one thing, though, that for me personally is, is different is that when I was younger, I was terrified of worms. I did not like them at all. And so the, oh, fact, no. that, and so the fact that the monsters were worms like really, really affected me. But then also it's like, you know, spoiler, they get theirs in the end. So I was OK with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is something like weirdly otherworldly about worms in general. Right. And they just they do seem kind of particularly disgusting as creatures. Right. And so they kind of it's kind of weird that there haven't really been a lot of worm movies, <laughs> worm, her, worm horror before this movie. Um, and yeah, and I, I totally get what you're saying there about the the campiness of it. It's not like sci fi channel like sharknado campy right um it, it's more like it, it takes itself more seriously than that but it isn't right. that far from that uh from that kind that level of camp um and also um you mentioned the the sequels um i don't think we'll talk too much about the sequels i've seen i think the first three um and they're all on netflix right now as we record who knows how long that'll be but um and uh i i think that they're all kind of fun. Um, none of them are quite this fun though, right? They're all fun in their right. own sort of different ways. And, you know, um, Michael Gross's, uh, character, Burt Gummer becomes kind of the, the hero of this, uh, franchise as it goes on. Um, and, and that is its own kind of fun, but it doesn't quite have what this movie has. The, the, the rest of those movies don't quite have what, whatever it is that the perfect stew <laughs> that makes this such a fun movie. <laughs> Um, and before, so I want to get into, um, a couple of kind of, um, issues and we'll talk about genre here in a second. Um, and, um, I'll say a couple things and I'll shoot it off to Jay and see what he has to say about genre and where it kind of fits in, um, with a lot of different kinds of not just horror, but other genres as well. But before we get into that, I, uh, people know me know that I have kind of a lifelong love of cryptozoology. And, and I just wanted to take a moment here to talk about, have you guys ever heard of the, I mean, there is a, a cryptid that kind of vaguely matches what goes on in this movie with the, with the graboids, the worms in this movie, there's the Mongolian death worm. Are you guys uh, familiar with this one? Uh, yeah, yes. Um, yeah. I, I am married to a big fan of cryptozoology, and we, he actually has, I don't think it's in his office anymore. When we lived in Kansas, David made himself a like an umbrella stand, like old-timey elephant foot umbrella stands, but it was a Mongolian death worm with the jaws <laughs> and everything. Um, so I've heard a lot about the Mongolian death worm, but it didn't occur to me. You're right. Watching Tremors, I didn't even think about it, but you're right. It's very similar. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the Mongolian death worm has other powers, like it can like electrocute you and things like that um but uh but it, generally speaking it's a it's a giant death deadly worm that lives under the sand and comes and gets you by surprise um in the gobi desert i believe it is uh and i think from what i've understood you know and people who've researched this as folklore have it's probably derived from some sort of um oh, some desert boa that is uh that's part of the ecosystem out there that people that the locals are, are they would identify as the mongolian death worm but in legend it becomes this really fun thing um jay had you heard about that one I'd heard a little bit about it, but not yeah. a whole lot. Yeah, it's a really good one. Um, there was a great series. I can't remember what channel it was on called Lost Tapes. Did you, uh, did you guys ever seen this? They're like little 20-minute horror films. They're basically no. like like no. found footage documentaries. I think it was on like Animal Planet or something like that. And they took these little cryptids and 
you know, someone found the footage of someone who was killed by one of these things. And they have one about uh, the, the death worm. That's actually a pretty good um, episode if you can find that series anymore. But uh, and also, I think um, Dune comes to mind with the uh, the sand. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this uh, there is like a literary and legendary precedent for uh, for the graboids before uh, this movie but i just wanted to kind of throw that out there as a special love of mine and i do i do know david loves this kind of stuff as well i am very jealous of that umbrella stand that, that sounds amazing actually yeah ask, ask him to tell you about it one time i feel like he also to go with the umbrella stand photoshopped himself kind of like a, a picture of some old-timey guys in safari hats and like put a put a death worm into it like a you know i don't know i can't put that in his office or not but um yeah it was and our kids would walk up to it and go what is this and want to like poke at the jaws yeah, that's awesome that's awesome well um let's talk a little bit about the genre of this movie because i do believe that that's kind of one of the things that makes it unique and actually kind of uniquely fun as well um i think that it's very much in the tradition of like a 1950s kind of big bug movie, right? Uh, I think you've got this kind of, um, um, I don't know, just ridiculous plot, right? Out in a, a, a isolated setting um, and some animal that shouldn't be as big as it is terrorizing a small community. So it has a lot in common with a very antiquated um, form of horror films. They really don't make those uh, and they hadn't and they haven't for a very, very long time. And uh, and so I think that's one reason that makes this kind of fun. But then you mix that with like the Western kind of uh, like the Western hero sort of trope as well. Uh, and I think that that's a lot of fun too. Jay, what are your thoughts about the how to classify this movie? Because it's, it's horror, it's comedy, it's a Western, it's all sorts of things. Well, I am no film expert by any means, but one thing that I've viewed it as was, has always been somewhat of a political film. Um, you know, when I was younger, I was obviously, I don't say obviously, but when I was younger, I was really drawn to uh, to the Burt Gummer character. You know, he's got all of the all of the ammunition and an underground bunker, and it's like, what, what nine or ten year old wouldn't want to have all that, you know? But the more that I watch it, I'm Let's see, this would have come out in the late 80s or early 90s. Yeah, I, I want to so, say it's like right around 1990, yeah. So, it is, yeah, so, 1990. So the more that, I'm, that I think about it, it's like, to me, it's almost like an end of the Cold War kind of thing, where you've got the, you've got the, you know, the red-blooded American who's stocked up against the communist invasion that might never come, and then it comes from the place that you least expect it, in this case, underground. In fact, he makes the comment, somewhere in the film that he's spent all this money building this bunker and then the worms come up through the ground. Yeah. Um, and then you've got that idea that the weaponry buildup that he has, most of it is ineffective and the ones that are effective, he's only got limited, limited stopping power. And in the end, it's not ammunition that wins the fight. So I kind of see it as that de-escalation of the cold war kind of thing. That's a really interesting point. I had never like thought of that. I always try to think about the political context of films. And this one always seemed to me to kind of transcend that a little bit. Um, but I think you make a really good point, right? It's the old, the old forms haven't held up in the way we expected <laughs> at this moment in history. Right. And, uh, and, and how does one, yeah. And I, one of the questions I want to talk about politics more like t as we go on, but one question I have is like, what political ideology 
does this movie actually support? And, and it's kind of a, a foggy question for me. And I think you pointed out one reason why there, Jay. And it's pretty cool. Um, Katie, what, what are your thoughts on this? I think um, I think you're right about the kind of big bug, bug movie thing. I haven't seen too many, but I definitely, when Dave and I were first married, um, we watched a ton of mystery science theater. So much yes. mystery science theater. And so there would there were a lot of those kind of movies. And I, I remember one with giant grasshoppers. Mm-hmm. Black and white film with giant grasshoppers. I can't remember the name. Attack of the Giant Leeches. We watched that one, which is maybe the closest you would get to Tremors mm-hmm. because they're kind of worm-like. Um, but one thing that I think is different, though, uh, even between those movies and this movie, even though this movie is clearly their descendant, is that in those movies, I just remember lots of scenes of screaming crowds. Mm-hmm. You know, like the populace is freaking out and there's all these people just mm-hmm. running. And in this case, you have, you know, you have the thing that's kind of like the big bug thing that the villain is the same, right? This monster, but it's just a very small group of people. And that felt feels different. I think that's what makes it feel a little bit, you know, it's like a it's like a big bug movie premise but it takes the form of something else you know um and and i i like what you said about it uh, being a kind of a western i i hadn't necessarily thought that through a ton but i i said to david when we rewatched it the other night like could you imagine if somebody had said to you hey we're gonna watch this horror movie and you know kind of our two heroes are gonna be riding on horses through parts of it like they're like riding you know they're riding off on their horses to save the day from this giant worm um you know and there's and i never thought about it till right now but they've got the water tower in town it's like a big wooden water tower it looks like something out of the 1800s you know um so it's the general store right yep yeah yeah so i think it does have that kind of we're out here on the frontier you know that kind of western feel i mean and then in the fourth movie it literally is set in the past in a past version of the town in the old west so they mm-hmm. leaned into that hard later on um but I, I think that probably the the big bug movie thing and the western thing i think are are the most but I, I get what jay is saying too though about you know some of that same ideas about um protecting yourself and your property and all that kind of stuff um some of those more kind of politically inflected ideas i think are, are a part of it too that's one reason i think it has so much appeal to and why so many people like it is because it's so many different things at once yeah more facets than a standard kind of gore fest yeah and it's not like overtly it doesn't really have like a very clear message, right? It's not trying, it's not preachy, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. It's not didactic at all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's no, you can't like watch this movie and you can't see the subtext that the filmmakers are trying to get through. They were trying to make a fun movie. Right. Um, but like any work of art, it comes out of a time. And so it, it comes encoded willingly or not with the artifacts of its time. Uh, and I, I definitely want to get into those. And yeah, and I, you're right, Katie, about how the this movie takes off the premise of big bug movies, but then doesn't go where those movies go. For me, like the prototypical one is Them. Have you ever seen that about the giant mm-hmm. ants? Um, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of my favorites, and and my young daughter, my youngest, uh, she loves these old fifties uh, sci fi horror movies, and that's one of her favorites too. She loves them, and uh, and and yeah, that movie. I mean, literally, you follow the people chasing the surviving ants all over the world, right? And they end up in L.A. and and, and so you've got this uh, um, kind of bigger scale to the horror uh, in a big bug movie. It's like I, which is because I think those movies 
are at their heart reacting to the nuclear age, right? Where global annihilation is the fear, right? And so that's why those big bug movies went in that direction. Um, this movie is post that, as Jay points out, I think. And, and, and I think you've got this uh, then transition of what those movies can do. Um, speaking of the big bug, there was one really bad movie from, the, I think, the 70s or maybe the 80s called Night of the Lepus. Have you ever seen or heard of this movie? <laughs> It's, no, I don't think so. It's basically a big bug movie, but with rabbits. And uh, so you've got <laughs> giant bunny rabbits <laughs> killing everybody. And it's, <laughs> and it's ridiculously low budget and terrible. But it's like one of those movies that Mystery Science Theater should have uh, should have parodied. Um, well, you both have talked. Um, uh, you've identified the way that the characters kind of um, make this movie. I think um, it really begins like there's just two guys out on the range, like doing like ranch hand work. Right. And they're just like goofing mm-hmm. off and, and, and kind of arguing. And, uh, and I, and I feel like this movie depends completely on the chemistry and the mix of all these characters. Right. And so um, I, I, and I was on a film inquiry round table on their YouTube channel. And I, I mentioned this for me, it's the chemistry of Val and Earl of, of Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. Um, I could just sit and watch those guys banter and go about their day for two hours. And that would be a fun movie for me. <laughs> I think they're, they're just, I would love to just be buddies with those guys. I think it would be fun. Um, and so for me, like those are like just really terrific, um, characters who are perfectly like drawn up and perfectly performed, I think by both, uh, by both cast members there. Um, what are some other characters I think that stand out to you as, as, is really important to this movie and, and some that something notable in some way. Um, I can't remember who I started the last question with. Uh, so l- let me start this one with, uh, with Katie. And I don't know. I mean, this, uh, this might be a little early cause I don't know if we were going to talk about, uh, female characters later, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm kind of fascinated. Well, and, sorry, let me back up and speak more generally. It's an interesting film to me in part because aside from Burton, Heather Gummer, and the doctor's doctor and his wife, who I forget about half the time because they get killed off so early right. um, in the film. But other than those two couples, it's basically a community of, of single people, um, which is interesting, right? You've got single mom, um, Nancy, I think her name is Nancy, Nancy, and then and Nestor and Miguel and Walter, and none of them have families. Um, David and I had a whole discussion the other day. We we were trying to figure out. I told David I always wondered whose kid, uh, what's his face is supposed to be Melvin. Um, Melvin. Melvin. So it turned, and we, I, and I always thought, who, which, which one of these people is his parent? It turns out, apparently, this is a question that gets asked a lot, and so we found an article about it online. Apparently, his parents are gambling, and they just left him at home. Oh, I always like, assumed it was oh, wow. Nestor's kid. Okay, that's yeah, what I, I thought. Know, no, that's that's what the filmmakers said, and they said in an earlier version of the script, they even had a scene where they had somebody say something like, "Why didn't they take him to Vegas with him this time? That would have been great." Like, but that's why nobody <laughs> seems to be caring for this kid because he's nobody's kid. But so you have all these single people, you know, living lives alone, basically, except for you know Burton Heather and, and the doctor and his wife. And it's just interesting that they've, you know. Um, but 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 Val and Earl have teamed up together, right? They seem to have chosen to live their life together as as friends, and that's really interesting. And you know, it's a like I don't know, it's a great friendship that is presented in a way that's just this is who these guys are. You know, they are a team, and I love that because I think that's rare. I don't think you see that in very many movies at all um you know and but i think that i really really like um 
I like their relationship and I, I really like Burton Heather's relationship. It's fascinating too, because he's kind of written as this strong alpha male, I, you know, I'm going to protect myself and my property and guns, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And so you expect him to be in some ways domineering, but if you really pay attention to their relationship, it's super egalitarian, you know, um, she when, when the graboid bursts through the wall of their basement, there's no, Oh, let me protect you, honey. Or, you know, get behind me. They immediately swing into action as a completely seamless team and they're passing weapons back and forth and ammo. And there's no question that she won't be able to kind of hold her end up, you know, and it's just really interesting. I feel like their relationship doesn't work the way you might expect it to if you just look at his characterization. And that's kind of fascinating to me. He also asked her opinion multiple times about which weapon he should use. Yeah. And she will kind of give her opinion in a very measured way. Well, I think you should do this. And, you know, it's just interesting. So their relationship to me is, is a really interesting aspect of the movie because it's really the only relationship, romantic relationship, you get to see with any depth or length or anything because the doctor and his wife are just gone. And so their relationship and Val and Earl's relationship are the two best, you know, they, those are the two relationships you see functioning in the movie. And that's kind of nice that you get a friendship and a marriage. Yeah. That, anyway. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And really the friendship is almost like a, a father-son quality to it as well because Earl, yeah. uh, Earl is, um, you know, not a lot older than Val, but significantly, right? You know, and he seems to be trying to get Val on the right track, kind of morally through his dating relationships and that sort of thing. Yeah, he, he, yeah, yeah. No, you're right, and and that's actually really um, like so. Reba McIntyre plays um, uh, Heather, right? And so it, it's really great casting and she's got this really amazing like spunk <laughs> to her and it was shocking this was before the show reba i think came out mm-hmm. and uh, i think this was her first acting job but i'm not sure about that don't quote me on it but it was her first movie i think yeah and and we've talked i'm i'm on this continuing series of the city man podcast where we talk about country music and, and we spent uh some time in the 80s episode talking about reba mcintyre and i think we might have mentioned this movie at that point um as well but but she's actually i mean it was surprisingly good i mean i don't think anybody would have expected i thought it was like stunt casting or whatever um and and i think one thing that where the sequels kind of one thing that gets lost in the sequels for me is that relationship because I, I assume Reba McIntyre just didn't want anything more to do with the franchise. And so they kind of write a divorce into uh, her and Bert's uh, relationship as Bert take, it goes on flying solo and it's, it's still fun, but I think it's lacking something. And I think you've done a great job of um, identifying and pointing to what is kind of lacking there. Um, uh, Jay, what about you? What are some like character standout characters or, or things about the characters that you really appreciate? Well, I mean, what haven't you haven't you already covered? <laughs> um, I was actually going to bring up uh, Heather as well with with Reba McIntyre tying back not into her acting, but the fact that this also ties it to the Western genre mm. because you would That's often, point, yeah. off, often in those, in the old Western movies, you had someone who was known as a country or Western singer, actor, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And so once again, you've got, you know, it's the nineties, her career as a singer has been established and you've drawn her into this, this movie tying it back into that Western genre anyway. No, that's a really good point. Yeah, Audie Murphy, Roy Rogers, the singing cowboy, right? Um, Bob Dylan was in westerns, right? <laughs> so ab- absolutely, that's that's great. Um, so, I, and, and I really 
you know, you mentioned that about Melvin, and I had always just assumed Melvin was Nestor's kid um, because he really reacts badly when Nestor gets killed, right? Um, and, yeah, that's mm-hmm. But it also makes sense that he's not. Um, I had not heard about that backstory about Melvin just being kind of left there. <laughs> um, we just found it out this week because we deliberately tried to look it up because they never explain. And that's what's so funny to me is they never even bother. They don't feel the need in the movie to tell you who does this kid belong to. And, and everybody hates him. And he's a little bratty kid. And Earl is like threatening to beat him up. And Nestor just kind of sits there. And so I'm like, what kind of father are you? Like everybody's <laughs> <laughs> like if people are threatening to lynch your child and you're just like sitting there like you have nothing to do with it. And maybe that's why, because he has nothing to do with it. Um so but but his like misbehavior is make puts a parental role on everybody else in the town. And and I think that's actually a really important role. And and you see it also with um uh, with Nancy's daughter, and I can't remember her name, Cindy, I think it is, uh, who's always uh, on the pogo Mindy? stick. Mindy, that's it. Yeah, um, who's a little girl from Jurassic Park? Later on, she was a little girl on Jurassic. I Park. Thought I recognized her today. Oh, I, did mm-hmm. I never put that yeah. together. Jurassic Park, another movie about uh, not moving so that the scary thing can't get you. Right? Oh my gosh! Oh, she's typecast. Oh, holy cow! I can't believe I never <laughs> knew that. Might be one reason why she got out of acting. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. <laughs> Um, but I mean, she's also like, she puts everybody in this kind of parental mindset, right? And I guess that's just one thing I want to say about this movie is that it's like the camaraderie, the, the idea of, of community is really important in the, to, to make this movie work. Uh, and I think having those children who are not like entirely cared for one way or the other, for whatever reason, they're letting Mindy bounce on her pogo stick while they're all trying to figure out where the graboids are. Uh, you know, um, like I think that creates a situation in which a community has to come together. Right. And, and I, I just think the relationships, not only the inter- intergroup, the intragroup relationships, but the intergroup relationships um, all come together. And when they're on the back of that, that semi-truck bed uh, in the climax of the movie, um, I think that it's just, uh, um, I think the whole movie builds up to this point where they all have to come together in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I think that that's, uh, that that's some great insight there about the characters. Any other thoughts about characters before we move on? Um, the one other well, thing I- I'll say, um, oh, Jay, go ahead. I was going to say, I, and it goes back to the way that the movie was cast. You don't really, and I could be totally wrong because I don't, I'm not a female, but you don't really have women in the film there for the sake of being women. They all have some role to play in the, in the movie. Um, You've got the seismologist who I forget her name. Rhonda. Rhonda. Thank you. But she has a role to play. She's the one who kind of figures out what these things are and what they need to do to be able to escape slash survive them. You know, no one is there just for the sake of, you know, something to look at, for lack of a better way. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. I, I do. I think it gets a little complicated with Rhonda's character, and I want to. I guess that's the next thing we're on. So I want to save that for the gender discussion. But but um um. Um, you had something else too, Katie. I, I think I was about to say we're going to talk about when we get to gender. So I'll just I'll say. Okay, okay. So yeah, with so with Rhonda's character. So this is I had a student this last semester. I taught a class on horror films, and a, one of my students um, wrote her final paper 
on this movie and particularly like the gender dynamics of it. Uh, and I thought it was a very compelling argument actually that she made. Um, and, and basically I think if I want to sum up her, um, you know, nice 15 page paper that she wrote me um, in a, uh, in, in just a few words, I want to uh, put it like this, that this movie like simultaneously empowers women to be equal with men, and but at the end, it reserves traditional roles for those same women. Um, and, and I think that that's actually you can see that with with Rhonda. Uh, that that to me, she is a character that is far more like intellectually uh, advanced and in many other ways, socially and in and, and class and all kinds of ways than anybody else in this community. And she does give them all the, the pertinent information that they need to survive this situation. Right. But in the end, she's kind of uh, persistently put in a position of a kind of traditional domestic role for a woman. Right. Um, and to, and to the point where she forms this kind of rather unbelievable uh, bond with Val by the end, right? I, I still never see them as a romantic match, but <laughs> but uh, but the movie does, and, and so I think that it's a little complicated with with her situation. And I actually want to um, get Katie's opinion on that, actually, since she's from the Christian Feminist Podcast. Yeah, I, and I think that makes sense, and I I think your student is onto something. I on the one hand, it's hard because on the one hand, I think she's right that in some ways this movie does seem empowering to women because she's I mean she's depicted as the most intelligent person in this town, mm -hmm. you know, like I mean you know kind of without intellectual equal. Though I could also appreciate she keeps getting frustrated because people keep saying, "What do you think it's going to do next?" Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like you know, this is unprecedented. Um, but you yeah, know, but so, where do they come from? Yeah. You know, um, I appreciate. I really appreciate that they cast. Oh, that that um, the actress looks to me like a regular person. This is not like the hot woman scientist that you see in tons of movies, mm -hmm. where somebody's supposed to be, you know, like the Christmas Jones kind of thing. Like you know, all the Bond girl scientists. It's not like that. She looks like a regular person. The first time you see her, she's got zinc all over her nose to prevent <laughs> sunburn. Um, she looks like a grad she, student at any university. Yeah, she does. Yeah, she wears active clothes that she can move in. And so all that is great. Um, but it frustrates me that still, despite all of this other stuff that they give her, all this great characterization, they still, in the course of the movie, manage to get her down to her underwear before the end of the movie so that you can see that her legs go all the way up, right? That's what he says he wants a girl who her legs go all the way up. And so it's it's a little frustrating, um, you know, that, that it's like they they felt like they it's it's like they couldn't make a movie without a tiny bit of, of some kind of eye candy, you know, um, and that, you know, it's, it's not great. As far as the kind of... Um, still putting her back into a, a kind of traditional role. Um, I'm not really sure about that, but it, it, it's, there are mixed signals because at the end of the movie, she says there's going to be major research and I'm going to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And there's the implication that this is probably going to make her career and she's going to go be, she's not going to stay in this place. She's going to leave. She's going to go on to do big things. And then, you know, he decides to kind of make a move at the end and they have this kiss or whatever. So, I mean, it's hard to know is she going to end up just back in a stereotypical role? But I don't, I do think there's a case that you could make for that because it's clear that that's, that she wants 
something out of him. She wants some kind of relationship with him. She's not like, okay, bye. Off to be awesome by myself and do, you know, um, important woman things. Um, you know, she still seems to want something romantic from their interaction. And you're right, Danny. I mean, in real life, would those two people ever get together? Probably not. And, you know, um, also in some ways, she's a little bit of a prop in his character development because Earl keeps telling him, you need to not just pick girls because they're hot. You need to pick a woman with a brain. And I literally turned to David the other night when we watched it and said, why doesn't she go for Earl? Because <laughs> me, he's the much better choice. He seems more intelligent. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's polite. He's kind of courtly. He's got this like older dude charm. I, like she should go for him, not, you know, Val, who seems like pretty shallow. Um, and so in some ways she seems like a, a way for him to become a better person. And that, I mean, you know, not great, but those are to me minor quibbles in a movie that otherwise does do some good things as far as portraying women as strong, um, you know, capable people. Yeah, I totally agree with the minor quibble part. Yeah, it's uh, to me, I do think that there's some really interesting things to explore um, underneath the surface. I don't think that that like cancels the movie or whatever, whatever you want. Definitely not. And your student's paper sounds really interesting because it sounds like she's doing justice to the positive stuff, but also then going into what the problems could be in, yeah. in a, a movie because no movie's perfect, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And she even got into some issues with, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to get into the weeds of horror film theories and all that kind of thing, but there's a, a concept of, of the monstrous feminine in which monstrosity is persistently coded as feminine in uh, in horror films and uh, and she kind of read the graboids themselves as kind of like venus flytrap looking uh creatures that kind of um, embody this kind of feminine nature so she looked at the the movie as kind of imposing the march monstrous feminine tropes on on uh uh, throughout and, and so she she kind of did a, a general fem- feminist critique of it and and i found the, the paper very compelling um but uh but that but she was at no point criticizing this movie from a kind of a valuative standpoint she was like analyzing it right and so um uh and that's enough of that i don't i don't want to get into the weeds of theory here um and so uh jay what about what do you think about all this well i wanted to push back just a little on the idea that and and her name's Rhonda. Rhonda and val shouldn't have been together because i think that they think they should have been together because of, you know, that shared trauma. They probably think that they have something more than they have and would try to make a go of it and then end up divorced a couple months or a couple years later. <laughs> That's just my opinion. Uh, Jay, do you remember in the second movie, it Earl's, Earl's in the second movie, but Val is not. And I, they sometime in that movie, they say what happens to them. And I feel like they say that maybe they're, they're together, like maybe that he left town to be with her. And that's why Earl's on his own. But I can't remember. So and I hate it that I can't I can't remember what they said. Um, I, can't I don't know either. I've, I've, I've like I said, I've seen all of the ones, but the first one is the one that gets all the all the playtime. If that's true, if I'm remembering that correctly, then that that's kind of fascinating. And that, you know, she that 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 is how that relationship ended up working out is that he goes with her to, you know, to to wherever she needs to go to do all this like fancy graboid research. I don't know. You would think they would be based there because that's where the graboids were. But they're all dead now. So and it is if my memory serves about the second movie, um, Earl finds a woman um, who I believe is also like a scientist type. Uh, If she's not a scientist, she's a scientist type uh, in a movie. I think you're right, Jane. Or not Jay, I think you're right, Danny. Yeah, yeah. And, and they end up sort of together. So Earl kind of follows in, in Val's footsteps in that second movie. But really, I mean, to go to Jay's point, I think that's a really good reading. If they do end up together, um, it is hard to see it working. And honestly, I, I can't picture 
Val without Earl. <laughs> In some ways, yeah. I feel like... <laughs> I, yeah, that makes sense. You can't really break that pairing up um, for any... You know what I mean? Um, and so I think you might have to add Val and Earl to Rhonda uh, for it to work in some ways. Um, but I, I honestly, Katie, I thought the same thing um, for a long time when I've seen this. I'm like, it seems like she would go for Earl because <laughs> Earl's like... <laughs> he's a much better match for her in every way, yeah. Um, and, and Jay, did you want to add on to that? No, I had nothing to add. I think that I was kind of the one that started that section anyway. Yeah. And and I do think it's a really interesting um, point to be made. And there are other examples. We already talked about Heather as this kind of equal in this kind of libertarian fantasy <laughs> that of the Gummers, right? Uh, she's sort of, uh, this is, uh, I don't know if this would be egalitarian or complementarian. <laughs> Or whatever, but uh, but they are uh, they are sort of equal in their uh, in their relationship, and also I think the film presents you know a single mother who's an entrepreneur, right? And, and Nancy, who's some sort of like artist, she makes like pottery or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, you do get like images. Uh, in this little town of perfection, which we can talk about why anybody would move to this place um, other than the Gummers. That makes sense for them, but for nobody else, it doesn't make any sense. But um, but uh, but yeah, you, the movie does, I think, go out of its way um, to try and um, empower women uh, in many ways. I do find the you have to take your pants off for me to save you a uh, moment to be a little cringy. Uh, I kind of always did and, 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 and no less so on this viewing as well. Um, and so let's get let's move into politics here and then we can sort of uh, finish up uh, with whatever thing that you guys want to talk about uh, th- that we haven't said yet. But and so I I do I, maybe it's because it is at that, you know, Fukuyama end of history moment. Um, I, I really have a hard time picking out the political ideology of this movie um, because it's got this kind of prepper libertarian um anti-government crusader uh gun hoarding family the the gunner gummers right um but it's also got like immigrants and it's got um all sorts of other people and none of them seem like more elevated I like the ideology of the film doesn't seem to elevate any one of the characters over any of the others and so i have a really difficult time pinning this movie's like politics down um jay you've i already spoken a little bit about politics but do you have any like other ideas about the politics of this film or perfection well in terms of what i think it's trying to promote i would think it would it's trying to promote a kind of communalism Mm. not 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 communism but you as you had said earlier you really need the community for this whole thing to serve not just to survive the the graboids but to even survive as a town as it is you know if you take away any one of the people there the whole system falls apart i don't know no you're right like so you think about um walter chang um and incidentally on the i guess this is on the subject of like film theory uh, this does kind of sadly fall into the point where you have the one kind of minority character you have has to die rather early on. Right. Uh, and it's kind of a, an unfortunate trope in horror films that this movie falls into. But but Walter kind of really is the only economy of that town. Right. And, and he's sort of like the only business in town um, that 
provides any services at all. Right. And so you've got without him as this sort of immigrant store owner, like nobody else, the gummers can't get their bullets. Right. And and Mm -hmm. so you've got all these other um, um, pieces that depend on this other piece here. And so, yeah, I think that's a really good point you make there. Um, Katie, what are your thoughts on this? I think you're right about that. And, and it is interesting that, I hadn't thought about that with Walter Storr kind of being the linchpin, but you're totally right about that. And it, it's 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 kind of a tiny a tiny functioning economy. You know, Nancy, the the Potter lady, she wants to hire Val and Earl to come and build her pottery kiln so she can make more pottery because she has a lot of pottery orders, right? And but then they're also gonna it's it's like I think in it in a town a tiny town like that, Val and Earl are able to make a very small living in a way they might not be able to in a big city because everybody knows them. So everybody trusts them. And so they call them up for all these little jobs, you know, to do. Um, and that's kind of interesting. Um, but they seem to always be wanting to leave and go to a bigger town, you know, and, but they never quite make it. And is the reason that they don't because this town is, is, a, is, is a safe community for them. It's a place where people know them. And, um, it becomes like a joke, right, at the beginning of the movie that they're trying to find, they're finally going to leave to go to Bixby and then the road's blocked and Grabway's coming, all this kind of stuff. As far as the the, the politics, I think you're right, um, Danny, that that's one reason I think this movie is popular is because it's not didactic, politically didactic in any way. But I did think of something, and I, well, actually I say I thought of it. Um, it's something David and I were talking about. I need to give him full full credit for that because this is something David mentioned today because we both kind of said together that we felt like you couldn't make the same movie today that it wouldn't work um, because today I feel like Burt Gummer would be the villain. We both kind of agreed on that, but David said today more specifically that he thinks the reason it wouldn't work today is because after this movie came out in 1990, in the 90s you had these other events Things like, you know, the Branch Davidian thing and the Oklahoma City bombing. And you had these different events that that made the idea of a guy with his own private arsenal really scary. Mm-hmm. And so he as a and I mean, it, though, you know, they kept he kept that character kept progressing through the sequels, though. So clearly it's not like anathema to have that guy around. But it, I think he works in the sequels because it is proven in the first movie that he needed to be like there it, it almost suggests that you know it's it's not the worst thing that they have all these weapons now he thought he was going to need them because of eminent domain that's what he says eminent yeah. domain we're going to take my land um i feel like if somebody made this movie now they would make him into some guy who wants to build the wall and he's gathering mm-hmm. weapons because he wants to keep outsiders with scare quotes outsiders out of his town whereas in this movie in 1990 it's about my land government's not going to take my land he's that like you said that kind of libertarian ideal so i think that the movie the same movie made today would be way more political if it was the exact same movie just because things are different now um and so it's that it makes it interesting watching it now um i don't think i think because the people and but i think part of that too is because the people in his tiny community kind of just roll their eyes at him None of them think of him as dangerous. They don't. They don't try to talk him out of his weird, you know, bunker, you know, like um, mentality. They just go, "Oh, crazy prepper," you know, yeah. <laughs> and they kind of move on. And so you, the audience, do too, in a way. Like you just kind of go, "Oh, that Bert," and then you kind of move on. And so I don't know. It's interesting. No, yeah. When they when he and Heather kill the graboid who's invading their basement. Um, 
uh, Fred Ward's uh, Earl says, oh, I guess we don't get to make fun of um, Bert's lifestyle anymore, right? And so yeah, like, yeah. he's just sort of like, yeah, that's just sort of like an accepting joke, right? Um, and yeah, and so yeah, I think you're totally right, though, Katie. I think that the 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 creative the institutionally creative environment of Hollywood today would look for some sort of like way to attach this to a popular conception um, of, of a certain political type of a tea party or something like that. Right. Um, and, and so, and I think you're, I think you're totally right. I think the fact that this movie was made in probably the most apolitical time in my lifetime, <laughs> right around 1990, was probably as apolitical as it gets in, in my lifetime, um, makes it kind of a special movie in a lot of ways because it doesn't have that kind of yeah. axe to grind. Um, Jay, do you have thoughts on that? On what specifically? Because I've, I agree with what was said. So, well, I mean, just I any, mean, yeah, I just wanted to know if you wanted to elaborate I mean, on anything. Yeah. No, um, no, I think you've pretty much I, I think we're all in agreement on this. And in some ways, it makes for a bad show if we all agree. But <laughs> not, not at all. Um, I, this is a, I think. Yeah, we all got together for this because we all just for whatever variety of reasons, uh, uh, you know, came to appreciate this movie again anew. And uh, um, can I ask one? More, can I ask one question I just thought of? And yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm formulating as I'm thinking it. But do you think that maybe another reason for the movie feeling more apolitical or just being widely popular is that there's almost a kind of, um, I don't, the, the best way I can think of to say this, an a-regionalism, like it's non-regional. Hmm. It's not northern. It's not southern. It's the west, right? It's the, it's like out mm-hmm. in the desert. And so even though Burt Sporting is Atlanta Hawks hat, like there's not even an alignment to any particular region of the u.s like and so it seems like you've got this mixed bag you know walter um is chinese american you know miguel um is you know is hispanic but and everybody else you know seems to have come from another place like bert says we moved here because of geographic isolation you know it's just interesting to me do you think that maybe that's one reason it's also less political is because it's so not rooted in any particular region i don't know but no. maybe it is. Maybe it's very Western in a way that I don't understand because I'm not from the West. Um, well, I'm not either. And I, I know the only thing I know is from books. Right. And so um, but the idea, yeah. And I think that makes some sense, though, because that's one thing we associate with the Western as a genre is that's a place where people went to create themselves. Right. And you left whatever kind of cultural baggage you had behind and, and you created a new self uh, in this new open environment. And in this place, there's literally no law. Right. There's no legal figure um, even overseeing this community. This is um, a community without any kind of authority. Um, I think this is, you know, when you talk, you, when Jay talked about communalism, um, I mean, to the extreme, right, there's not even a cop in this town. <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, this, these are people who just sort of come together and accept one another and they're all wildly different people. And the movie goes out of its way. I mean, um, Walter's um, very generous with his horses and, and, and uh, Walter's there to, you know, make money and he he kind of swindles them out of $15 or for the snake that he buys for $15 right uh, for the tongue of the, of the graboid um, but but he's also yeah take my horses you know um, you're welcome to this you're welcome to that um, and then Miguel's the one who comes up with the idea to distract the graboids and so all the characters are placed on a very even ideological footing as if there is no um, history of tension between anybody. And I think you're right, Katie. That's a really good, um, that's a really good point. 
Um, and and I, I, I wanted to say that too. And I think this is a, a, a movie that subverts a lot of political expectations of others, right? And so it's hard for us to imagine someone like the Gummers living side by side as equals with um, Mr. Chang and, and, and Miguel, right? <laughs> we, we just can't imagine that in our current political imagination, even though it does happen all the time. But in our, our political imagination, um, no side wants to see that as, as a possibility. And maybe that's why the town is called perfection uh, in that way. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is uh, what perfection looks like in, in the American West. I don't know. Um, Jay, do you have any other thoughts on politics? Um, I was, yeah, I was going to say, I, along with geographic isolation, I don't think that we ever get any incidentals of the outside world period. I mean, today, if you're watching some kind of thriller, horror show, something like that, a lot of times, even if it's just a passing glance at a TV, you'll see some kind of news anchor or reference to the president, something like that. We don't get that. I don't think in this movie. I mean, Bert makes reference to the government, but I don't think he ever references a political party. No, he's not saying no, I'm. He doesn't. Yeah, he, he's not saying you know it's that Democratic president or it's that Republican president. If they come in, no, he's just against the government because the government is is his bogeyman. We might say. Yeah. So I and I don't think that like so we don't see any TV. I don't think we hear any radio, nothing like that. So we don't get those little incidentals that try to put us in a frame of, of mind in regards to politics. Yeah, the only thing I can think of, um, I think when the doctor and his wife, when their car is going under, I think it's a Tanya Tucker song that's on the radio um, that you can hear um, when, when the radio ad gets accidentally kicked on. But yeah, that's extremely just kind of, um, it almost sounds like a... a just like an oldie and then i think val calls it the, the golden oldies right um well and, and that's that's a great point too jay that never occurred to me but in terms of setting in, in that way i mean the clothes obviously in this movie are, are you know fairly dated but in terms of the cultural ref or the lack of cultural references it could kind of happen anytime in some ways like you know um you can watch it you know i saw it as a, a teenager so that would have been the well let's see that would have been maybe the late 90s early 2000s when i probably would watch it with my dad and i didn't you know i wasn't thinking this seems so dated <laughs> You know, I, I, it, because it's there aren't those specific cultural signifiers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's a really good point. Yeah, this movie is it, it is kind of out of time. And I think that partially because of when it was made, as we're talking about um, before the rise of right wing, you know, the, the terror of the, the fear of right wing violence, um, but also um, the fact that uh, it doesn't seem to wield any kind of political agendas. Um, it uses the tropes of a very antiquated um, subgenre of horror films, uh, the big bug movies, right? And so, it, yeah, it does feel sort of like this disembodied <laughs> thing just floating through time, uh, unaffected by everything. And so, yeah, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's very, very cool. And, and incidentally, um, I, Katie, you brought up the, the conversation about this is before – you know, Waco and, and the Branch Davidians and Ruby Ridge and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, you know, we've come to know that that paranoia was overblown. Right. Um, and that's kind of what led to Waco, um, because there was like a, a paranoia about right wing violence that was outsized. Right. And it wasn't it wasn't like. Yeah reality right i think it was a, a creation it was a conspiracy theory created by the liberal media um to, to use 
<laughs> to use that term, but uh, I don't. I don't. I don't. I mean it in the the L, the small L version of liberal in this case, in the just sort of the mainstream media. Um, it, this was a trope that got built during the '90s about uh, right wing militias, and it created a fear in the government. And Andrew Walker's book, The Paranoid States of America, gets in has a whole chapter about this. Um, that that fear of right wing political violence did not match with reality, and that led to um, Waco, which apparently there's a, a, a series on Netflix about Waco right now that I haven't watched, um, but um, I think it gets into this a little bit. Um, and so it's kind of unfortunate that we couldn't do this again because it wasn't even true, right? I mean, certainly there are white right wing yeah. ideologues, but it wasn't as dangerous as we were thinking it was in 1995, right? That makes sense. So, sorry, just to get off on a little tangent there. Um, I just also taught a class on conspiracy theory, so this is also fresh in my <laughs> fresh in my head as well. <laughs> so, um, um, so do you guys have any kind of final thoughts? We're here about just about an hour here. Uh, anything that you wanted to sort of add or make sure you got to? We'll start with uh, Jay and then move to Katie. Um, run fast. That's all I've got. <laughs> <laughs> and have a bomb made of the proper proportion of household... <laughs> <laughs> household cleaners or whatever he said. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about you, Katie? Um, I One thing that never occurred to me to say till now, but you made me think of it talking about the Tanya Tucker song, and that made me think about the sound in the movie. And I think that's another reason that this movie is so interesting is that it's at moments very characterized by silence because everybody's trying to be quiet, right? Because if they can hear you, they can find you. Mm. And that's interesting too, because at least when I think of old timey scary movies, I think about like scores, right? Swelling, scary music. Like it tell the music tells you something bad's about to happen, you know? Um, and, but in this movie, some of the scariest moments are almost completely silent because they're, they're trying to be quiet. And I just think that's kind of interesting. It, it's another thing, uh, you know, and it, alongside the sunlight and the brightness and the, you know, the bleached heat that just kind of soaks out of the movie, the silence also is something different. It's not something I would expect to see in a scary movie or that there would be that much kind of quiet and silence. But you can tell me if I'm right about that, Danny, because you've seen way more scary movies than I have. I mean, is that as unusual as it feels to me? No, no, you're right. And I think uh, the movie from uh, the... Oh, Jim from The Office. John Krasinski is that a quiet name? place. Uh, a quiet place. Oh, I, yeah. I still haven't seen it because is it? I, I can never decide if I think it's going to be too scary or not. It's pretty scary. So I haven't watched it. Uh, it's it's very it's a great movie. Um, I but it was given a lot of credit for for doing this. But I think you're right. In some ways, a lot of that was established. Uh, I mean, you see that early on in this movie, right? I mean, that's that's how you survive is by standing there still. And and yeah. And I have to say, when I did see a quiet place in the theater. Um, I, it was weird to be in a, a full movie theater that was that quiet. Nobody, nobody made a peep, um, while, while you were, wow. while the characters were being quiet, we all were too, just sort of subconsciously. And I think that's one of the more fascinating things about that movie. I do highly recommend that movie. In fact, um, I was going to teach it, um, this semester with my horror film class. We have a big um, sign language, American Sign Language interpreting program. Um, and if I'd had any numbers of those students in this class, I was going to have um, a quiet place on there, but they didn't sign up. So I didn't, <laughs> I didn't include it. Um, but, uh, but I do, I do recommend that movie. It's really good. Um, um, so no, that's a great point. And yeah, and I think it's another, we don't, other than the Tanya Tucker song, um, you're right. They get no radio signals from anywhere. Um, the CB doesn't work. The phone is dead. So there is no sort of connection anywhere outside of town. And so what you're left with 
from a kind of film form perspective is just um, diegetic sound. There is no sort of um, um, non-diegetic uh, sound in the background. It's all just sweeping orchestral suites at the proper moments, right? Um, and, and I think that makes it feel like a very old-fashioned movie in a lot of ways. So, um, well guys, I really appreciated this, this show. It was kind of an unexpected one. Um, I'm hoping to kind of squeeze in a bunch of podcasts here in the next couple of weeks to, uh, get me booked up for the summer and, uh, who knows when this is going to come out, but, uh, this was a, a lot of fun and I, I learned a lot. You guys made me think a lot about a movie that I've seen a million times, but, uh, never gets old. This is one of those movies that I think I'll watch for the rest of my life and, uh, and always enjoy as if it was the first time. So, um, any last thoughts from anybody? I just, um, thanks for, thanks for having me on to talk about it. And you're, I mean, I was going to say the same exact thing. There's things that never even occurred to me about this movie until I was getting ready to talk to you guys about it. And now while I'm talking about it, this is why I love podcasting because it, you know, it flips things for me and I get to see it from a different perspective as I talk about it with other people. So I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on. Um, anytime, both, both of you are welcome at any point. Um, <laughs> Katie Grubbs, Jay Eldred, thanks for joining me for another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. If you, the listener, have any thoughts on this, be sure to send me an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com um, or go to our Facebook page or the Twitter account and, uh, and contact me there. I'm happy to answer any, uh, any correspondence that you have. Uh, and for Jay and Katie, my name is Dandy Anderson, thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast.